So, Father, there have been here in recent uh, couple of weeks, we've, we've seen some devastation. Uh, many of us have friends and family in Houston, others in Florida. We, uh, we've been safe. We've been fine. And for that, we thank you. But these things just show us that our, um, our sense of control over our own lives that uh, tends to get inflated is, is indeed inflated. Uh, you are the God who causes um, both darkness and light. You are the God who causes well-being and calamity. You're in absolute control. You're in absolute charge. You, you use the good things in life and the bad things in life. You use health. You use disease. You use all things. You're never the author of evil, but you use evil. You're so great. You're so majestic. You're so sovereign. You're so good. You can take evil. And you can turn it in some way, in some shape, somehow for our good. You've promised that in Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes in life, there's, uh, to use the old sports adage from Jim McKay, there's the thrill of victory and there is the agony of defeat. We, we love to advance, we love to accomplish, we love to reach all of our goals, but sometimes there is failure, sometimes there's devastating disappointment. Uh, the plans that we have, have made and the plans that we have dreamed over and uh, thought about and worked hard for can suddenly just be dashed and taken away. And you are sovereign over it all. I believe it's Proverbs 16 that says, the mind of man plans his way. And we do that but the Lord directs his steps. We have our plans, and we can't imagine anything being better than our plans being fulfilled. But you are the God who is of infinite perfection and infinite creativity, and you have all wisdom. You know what's best. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ask, or think, and that would include, include our plans. You're, you're able to so far surpass our plans, it's astonishing. And for those of us who have walked with you long enough and we have experienced that agony of defeat, we have also, because of your great faithfulness, been astonished by the favor you brought into our lives that we never could have imagined. When you redirected our course, when you redirected our steps, but that usually goes through the intersection of deep disappointment. Some men are there right now. Pray, we pray for them, that you would encourage them, that they would not lose heart, that they would not lose hope, but that they would put their trust in you 
as Jeremiah did in Lamentations 3 when he said, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. We hold on to you. We hold on to Christ. We hold on to your word. Help us to take this life a day at a time. And sometimes we just even need to break it down smaller and take it 12 hours at a time. And just trust you for your faithfulness and mercy and goodness in the next 12 hours. You've never failed. You never will fail. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In his name we pray. Amen. We started um, last week a new series, and in a sense, to be real honest, it is a continuation of what I did last spring. I'm just giving it a different title. We spent most of last spring talking about manhood. We talked about um, the critical need for manhood. We talked about the critical need for fathers and grandfathers to be mindful of the responsibility that they have been given as Christ followers and to focus on the task that God has given us to do as his men. It's not stuff that's real spectacular. It won't make you famous. Uh, they probably won't write a book about you when you die. But those who know you and those who are in your sphere of influence, every man has a sphere of influence. Adam had the garden. That was his sphere of influence. Uh, our sphere of influence is uh, where we live. It's where we uh, work. Uh, it's, um, it's where your kids or grandkids go to school. It's, it's the geographical, I mean, really, you can map it out. It's, if you look at your mileage record, you know, in your car, it's where you spend most of your miles. There, there he had, hey, the garden had a plot. You, your life, for the most part, you stay within certain boundaries. Within that, those boundaries are relationships. Within those boundaries are people, family, wife, kids, grandkids, cousins, this, this. Guys at work, church, this, this, but you got a sphere. Some have larger spheres than other. Uh, most people won't have a Billy Graham-sized sphere. Most of us are just local guys, and you know we'll get on a plane every once in a while and go do something. But you have your sphere, and it's important, and it's what God has assigned us to do as men. Uh, Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, because we, just, just by way of review, to, to kind of get us jump-started as we kick off, last week we looked at Deuteronomy 6, and we looked at it last spring some. I want to look at it again, because it's one of those 
go-to passages for men in regard to what their responsibilities are. The context is <clears throat> in Deuteronomy. The context is important. Deuteronomos, second law. I didn't know Moses gave him a second law. He didn't. But in Deuteronomy, he's restating the original, he's restating the original law for a second time to a new generation of men whose fathers did not trust in God. Do you get that? They didn't come from good stock. Maybe you don't come from good stock spiritually. That doesn't matter. Each man has to decide what he is going to do. Along with Joshua, who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Doesn't matter what your father did or your grandpa or as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now look at the responsibility he's giving them as they're getting ready to go into the land and start a new civilization. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you might do them. He's talking about the word of God that you might do them in the land which you are going over to possess so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be prolonged. I want to stop right there. We tend to think, and I said this last week, we tend to think in American culture that our job as fathers is to raise our families, get them through school, you know, get them ready for adulthood. They leave the house. We've done our job. That's not what this says. It's so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. If you put a pencil to that, and by the way, what you have there is a very short genealogy, is it not? You and your son and your grandson. That's a genealogy. Now, you can get on Ancestry.com and go way back. But that is a genealogy. And what I see here is that for men who are following Christ, our responsibility is not just for our sons and daughters, but it's to raise them in the fear of the Lord so that they'll have wisdom and knowledge, so that they in turn can raise sons and daughters to walk in the fear of the Lord. Uh, you know what a genealogy is? A genealogy is, uh, if you will, and boy, are there not a lot of genealogies in Scripture. And have you ever decided you're going to read through the Bible? Uh, first thing in the morning, you get up at five, and you get your coffee, and you start reading, and you're following your Bible reading calendar, and one morning you're up at five, and you haven't had a lot of sleep, and you hit a genealogy. Boy, that's exciting. You're about ready to nod off. You know what a genealogy is? A genealogy is a very, very long chain. It's just a chain. And each family, each man and his wife and his children, they're one link in a very long chain. You've got three links right here. My premise and... Uh, Back in 1998, I did a book called Anchorman. And the premise of that book was how to anchor your family in Christ for the next hundred years. I got it from this passage. Because if you take you 
and your son or your daughter and your grandson, and you map that out. You see, when a man is sold out to Christ and all in with Jesus, that's an anchor. We talked last week about drifting families. We talked about Dennis Rodman, a guy who's adrift. We talked about Howard Stern, a guy who's adrift. But then we looked at their fathers and their history, and the reason that Dennis Rodman is adrift is because his father was adrift. A man who fathered 27 children, his goal was to father 30, was living with his two wives in the Philippines and hadn't seen his son Dennis in 30 years. That's a man adrift. No wonder Dennis Rodman was adrift, and is. Howard Stern, different, but a father that just berated him and kind of explains these two guys. When Christ gets a hold of a man, he anchors us. He anchors us on the solid rock. And as a result of that, as we come to know Christ and come to know his word, and as we mature in Christ, that is to be lived out in our sphere of influence, in our families, in our work, in our relationship. What Christ has done in my heart and what I'm learning from him in his word, that is to be applied in my home, to my wife, to my kids, to my grandkids, to my relationships at work. It's, it's to be lived out. And after I die, and after you die, and we're not talking perfection here. We know that. We'll not be perfect in this life. But there can be growth, and there's forgiveness in Christ, and there's healing and we can resolve family issues and hurts and pains, and they can be reconciled. This is part of living out your faith. That's all part of anchoring your chain. And when we die, the fact of the matter is, that influence goes on even when we're gone and with the Lord. It can go 100, 150 years. That's the point. Um, I have a friend, I was in Georgia this weekend, and I have a friend who, um, this guy has a heart for men's ministry. Business guy, he's, a, he's, he's not a speaker, he's not a teacher, he loves the Lord. And when he picked me up at the airport, we were talking and I said, how many, t how many conferences have we done up here in 20 years? And we were trying to, we couldn't count, 12? 14, 15, I've been all over Georgia, and this guy's put it on, and it's actually been thousands of guys over those 20 years through this one guy who works with churches and Christian groups and let's do a men's conference. And so we were just talking about that. We were driving, you know, up the road. How many is this? He goes, well, I don't know. But he, sees, he said, Steve, you remember my story. I said, I don't know your story. <laughs> He said, I've never told you my story. I said, no. What's your story? And he said, well, he said, I'll give you the short version because we're almost there. He said, between kindergarten and graduating from high school, was that roughly 12 years? Uh, we moved, my family moved 17 times in 12 years. I said, really? He said, yeah, my dad was a pastor. I said, well, well, that's still a lot of moving. He goes, yeah. 
But uh, the reason we moved is that my dad had 17 affairs with women. That's why we moved. I, did, I said, I, I, you've never told me any of this. He goes, yeah. And he said, by the time I got out of high school, I wanted nothing to do with Christianity because, to me, my dad was Christianity. My dad loved to preach. He loved to get up and preach. But my dad was an actor. He was a fraud. And uh, just before I graduated from high school, I was in, you know, this new school. I met this girl and uh, really liked her and met her family and went over to her house a lot. And I really liked her and I liked her family. And uh, her dad was, uh, had a bunch of orchards and actually wound up working for him in the summer. And I just really, I mean, I, I grew to love her quickly and I loved her home. I loved how they lived. They were Christian people. I mean, and, but they really loved Christ, and it was, it was lived out. I'd never seen that before. I had never seen that before. And suddenly, I wanted what they had. What I had seen was a counterfeit. They had the real thing. He wound up marrying her, and they've been married 42 years. And he said, you know, Steve, I can't do what you do, but... Um, I, uh, I believe the message of equipping men. That's why I've had you up here so many times. And I said, wow. What was interesting is that the real reason I was there, he wasn't putting on the conference. His son was putting on this conference, who was 30. And his son, throughout his 20s, has had two major huge disappointments in his life that has completely redirected his life got cancer right after he got married. Pretty aggressive cancer. Survived it. Went back to firefighting. Was doing some practice with some other firemen in a bucket about 100 feet, and the bucket collapsed. And they didn't think any of them were going to live. And they did. But his dreams of firefighting were over. And God's redirected his steps through these disappointments. And now, he's calling me. Would you come up and talk to these young guys that I know? And it's kind of fun, because you see, as I'm driving and my friend's telling me the story, and we're pulling in and I see his son waving, I'm thinking, so that you and your son, and then his son's got two little boys. And your grandson. There's three links there. And you see what Bruce did. He said to me, Steve, he said, I honestly don't know if my dad's in heaven or hell. I don't know if my dad ever knew Christ. I see no evidence that he did. He could sure preach, but he was hell to live with. So I won't know until eternity. So you see what, what my friend has done. In spite of how he was raised, he met Christ. Christ pulled him in, and he has said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's put a new link 
in his family chain. See? And every man has that opportunity. Some of you have a great spiritual heritage that goes back for generations. Some of you, you're the first. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. The influence that we have as fathers and grandfathers is remarkable, for good or for bad. I think you would agree with me that uh, where we are as a nation, we are in great crisis. Um, I seem to quote Psalm 11.3 a lot, which says, if the, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we're kind of been watching for quite a number of years the foundations that this nation was built upon being destroyed systematically. Uh, what can the righteous do? Well, what they, when the foundations are being destroyed, you make sure you're not destroying the foundations. You, might, you make sure you're building your house on the rock. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Doesn't matter what's going on around us. Doesn't matter what the culture's doing. Doesn't matter with the legislature or this or the courts or this. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Jesus is the king. The Bible's the constitution. That's how we're going to live our lives. No doubt, though, we're in crisis. Um, in 1990, I wrote Point Man, and I gave this quote in that book from James Dobson. When I did Anchorman in 98, I gave the same quote again. I'm going to read it again. What Dobson said back in um, 1980, because it certainly applies. In 1980, James Dobson said, the Western world stands at a great crossroads in its history. It is my opinion that our very survival as a people will depend upon the presence or absence of male leadership in millions of homes. I believe everything within me that husbands hold the key to the preservation of the family. If that was true in 80, how much more so true is it now? In 80, he says, our very survival as a people. You know, you have to ask the question, how long in this nation can we keep going as a nation? Because you have the, if you read history, you have the rise and fall of great nations, if you read Toynbee. And there were 23 or 24 great civilizations you know, that were the greatest, the one most, oh they'd, oh, they'd always be there. No, they last about 250 years at the most. And then they start, then they start falling apart from inside. They get destroyed from within. It's kind of where we are. I'm just here to encourage you. <laughs> but you're aware of it. I mean, it's not, nothing new. And so how long will it go on? We don't know. I mean, the Lord's sovereign over all this stuff. Shouldn't keep you up at night. But we just, it's just an impetus to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm going to build on the rock and not on the sand. That's what I'm going to do. You go back each decade and you see the deterioration. So I'm shooting baskets with the kid across the street from me named Craig, 1956, Bakersfield, California. Craig and I are in the same class. And we're shooting hoops. And we're just shooting hoops and talking. And I said, hey, Craig, I never see your dad. Where's your dad? I just never see him. Does he work a lot? He goes, oh, no. My dad doesn't live here. He said, my mom and dad are divorced. And I said, 
What's that? 56. Now, I wasn't real, I wasn't real bright. I'll grant you that. But you see, in 1956, in a public school, in my class, there wasn't one kid in our class whose parents were divorced, except Craig. That was 56. Have, uh, have things changed a little bit? Yeah. Back in 56, people didn't get divorced. Christians, non-Christians, you just didn't do it. It just wasn't what, it, was, it wasn't right. You stayed together. Christian, non-Christian, you, you didn't divorce. It was part of the foundation from our Christian heritage. In 56, parents didn't divorce. But by 1966, just 10 years later, society was changing its mind. In 69, California, of course, was the first state to introduce no-fault divorce. I remember one afternoon I got a call from Mary. I mean, it's 20, 25 years ago. And I could tell by her voice something was wrong. She, and I, she said, Steve. And I said, Mary, what's, what's, what's wrong? She said, I've been in an accident. I had two questions. My first question was what? Are you okay? She said, I'm fine. I said, good, okay. What was my second question? Whose fault was it? She said, Steve, it was no one's fault. It was the most amazing thing. We were going down 635 by the gallery, and suddenly, metaphysically, these two cars of their own volition came together without any human... In in she didn't say that. No, this guy clipped me from behind. He tried to get in and clipped me and spun me. Oh, okay. And you're okay. Yeah, all right. So then, you know, get in the car and head down there. It's always somebody's fault. And nobody's faultless. But let's say this. Let's say this. We came up with this thing called no-fault divorce, and as a result, it has spread to all these states. And as a result of that, Here's a stat for you. In 1956, about 300,000 children across America watched their parents divorce, 300,000 kids. By 1996, 10 years later, 23 million children did not live with their biological fathers. So David Popino wrote this. The scale of marital breakdown in the West since 1960 has no historical precedent that I know of and seems unique. There has been nothing like it for the last 2,000 years, which is why I want to continue talking about this subject of Christian men and their marriages and their kids because, quite frankly, the divorce rate within the church is pretty much equal to what it is outside the church because we've been drinking the worldly Kool-Aid. So I think as men, we need these reminders. Here's what we're going to do tonight. I want to I make, I got three points, and I'll give the three points to you, and we'll come back and get them. Here's number one.
The first point is we're going to look at three groups of fathers, okay? And when I say fathers, this includes grandfathers, because as we saw in Deuteronomy 6, grandfathers are not left out of the equation, okay? You're a major player, big time. So first, number one, we'll look at the three groups of fathers, and then our second main point is that we will look at three observations from Malachi. Three observations from the book of Malachi, if you're Italian, the book of Malachi, whatever you prefer. <laughs> and then third, our third main point is we're going to look at two key steps to anchor your family. Two key steps to finish it off. Um, Turn with me, uh, you were in Deuteronomy 6. Before we leave that, go over to Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. You've, you've heard in Scripture and you've read in Scripture that the sins of the fathers are visited on the third and fourth generation. Uh, what does that mean? It means that when a man is adrift and away from God and away from, cross, uh, from Christ, and when a man is uh, all about himself, and we're all all about ourselves, we're all selfish, we're all narcissists, we all have selfish ambition. I mean, that's the bottom line. Without Christ, we're selfish, we're sinners. And so what happens when we, we live to ourselves and a wife lives to herself, and it's just, it's not based on the Word of God. There, there's, there's no rock, there's no foundation, there's no support. You're just living, you're just drifting, you're just... What happens is, that, that sin and those wrong choices, children see them and they tend to emulate them. And so in a sense, they're visited on those children and then they live out that same thing and then they pass that on. It's the opposite of spiritually anchoring your family. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a tragic chain of sin being passed down from generation to generation. But when Christ comes in, it changes everything. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. He's a new link in the chain. Okay. Deuteronomy 7, and, and this is amazing. Now, I want you to see this. 7-9 of Deuteronomy. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is not a flat-out guarantee that every link in your chain after you come to know Christ will in turn follow Christ. You got a whole list, you got a whole genealogy of kings in the Old Testament. And you can follow those guys, and it's amazing because you'll have a godly king like Hezekiah, one of the godliest kings who ever lived, and then he'll have a son named Manasseh who was an absolute he was the epitome of evil, and he had a godly father. Now, later in his life, God severely disciplined him, and later in his life, he turned and repented. But the point is, the point is, as Hezekiah lived his life, undoubtedly he taught his son, but the son has to make his decision that he too is, is going to what? Who's going to keep who's going to, 
you can't live off the faith of your father. It has to become your faith. You have to submit your will to Christ and say, Lord, I'm yours. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments instead of, keeping, instead of rebelling and going against him and going the other way. And, and kids go through, yeah, didn't, didn't you go through a process when you were young? Sure. Our kids go through stuff. They got to work stuff. We don't get this overnight. You don't jump into a microwave and, you, you know, I'm all in 100% and I'll never sin again. Didn't work that way. It's a process. So each successive generation has to decide what they're going to do with the Lord. And you might die. You might have a kid who's a prodigal. You might die before they ever come back to the Lord. Or then again, you've seen a prodigal come back to the Lord. You see? But each generation's got to make his choice. Let's talk about this first point. The three groups of fathers, okay? And I would put it this way. There's three groups of fathers that Satan wants to derail. Three groups of fathers that Satan wants to derail. He doesn't want to derail all fathers because fathers without Christ are already derailed. He wants to derail certain men who are following Christ. Last week we talked about Bruce Wilkinson had a concept of three chairs. And he used this illustration of looking at a stage with three chairs lined up one next to another. The first chair represented the man who has heard the gospel, has responded to Christ, and is growing and maturing and living under the authority of the Word of God. He's all in with Christ. That's the first chair. Okay? I mean, he's in. There's no screwing around here. I'm following Jesus. The second chair is an individual who has heard the gospel, responded, but, oh, oh, the guy in the first chair, the key word in his life, you can embroider it on the chair, is the word commitment. Commitment. The second chair, this guy's heard the gospel, he's responded, but he is, um, he's kind of ambivalent, he's wavering, he's half in, he's half out, he's, he's not in the word, he's really not seeking the Lord, he's just sort of, you embroider in his chair the word Compromise. Compromise. He's not all in. He's not grounded. He's not, he's not under the authority. He's still trying to live his life. And Okay. And sometimes we go through a process, that's where we are. But you can't stay there. The third chair is uh, the chair, and, it, and you see this in families sometimes. You see it in generations sometimes. First generation follows Christ. Second generation, I mean, the first generation is really committed. Second, second they're in, they're, they follow the Lord, but a little ambivalent. The third chair represents those maybe raised in Christian homes. They know the gospel, but they have no interest in it. Um, no interest whatsoever. They, uh, they really don't want anything to do with it, you see. There are three groups of fathers that Satan wants to derail. Why? Because they're in the first chair and they're committed. They're committed. They want to be committed to Christ. So let's talk about these three groups of men and where they are and what's going on with them and why Satan wants to take them out. 
If you're all in with Christ, you should know this. You're on Satan's hit list. Okay? Um, fathers are the key, and Satan knows that. So he's going to try and take you out. Let's talk about the first group. There inevitably are guys in this room who... Uh, let's talk about divorce real quick, okay? Those of you who are divorced, some of you wanted the divorce, some of you didn't. Uh, some of you guys um, did everything you could do to keep that divorce from happening, but you have no legal basis anymore to do that. But there are others, and there have been guys in this Bible study who come up and said, yeah, I'm, I wanted it, I had a hard heart, I caused it, it was my fault. What if you're in that camp and you say, yeah, that was me, that was my fault, and I want to turn it around? Uh, you know what? You run to Christ. Christ can forgive any sin. He can forgive any sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We just have different kinds of sins. Yeah, and Steve, I've come to that. I've come to know Christ, but I have all this remorse and regret, failure because of what I did, and my wife has remarried, or, or, she won't, or she's not remarried, but she won't have anything to do with me because I absolutely, well, I, I, she can't trust me anymore because of how I live, but now Christ has come into my life, and, and I don't know what to do. Well, what you do is you just simply follow Christ today. You just follow the Lord. And the question is, Steve, I, 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 it's like I broke the eggs. They're all scrambled. I can't, how do I unscramble the eggs? You can't. You can't unscramble those eggs. But we have a God who can unscramble eggs. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences from past sins. Sometimes there are. But we have a God who is so great, if a man is repentant, and if a man turns to Christ, and you get all in, and you say to the Lord, if I could, my wife's remarried. I can't reconcile. No, you can't. I, I remember talking with a guy who absolutely ruined his life for years. Years. And he wouldn't mind me telling you the story. John Harris, who would come, John's been here for years. He's not here now because he's discipling a bunch of guys on Wednesday night. But John's kids and my kids went to school together. And John was raised in a Christian home and had a great corporate career and was doing really well and nice position, nice home, etc. And got into some drinking he'd never done and some drugs, and I mean, he was gone. He was homeless for years. His daughters would come over and meet with Mary and pray for their dad. I've talked to John. He can't even remember. There's gaps he can't even remember. He was so far gone. Living homeless under overpasses uh, in Dallas. And then the Lord got a hold of him, and nobody believed him. Sort of like the Apostle Paul. You remember when Paul got saved? <laughs> and uh, the Lord told, was it Agabus? He said, go and pray for him. And he said, Lord, you know who this guy is? <laughs> yeah, I know who he is. He's one of mine. <laughs> it's like when Chuck Colson got saved. People go, what? Oh, he's just trying to get out of jail. Yeah. 
It's kind of what happened to John. But now for years and years and years, he's been, it's amazing how things have turned around. His wife had remarried. He was estranged from his kids. I love seeing John with his kids. Ran into Costco a couple years ago, Christmas shopping. They're just hanging out, having, they love their dad. They call him all the time, asking wisdom advice. It's amazing. John and his wife, new wife. And y- you know what? Friends with his previous wife and husband, they, there's not, he never thought it'd be like that. All I'm saying is, guys, if, if that was you, you just get right with God and keep following him every day. That's it. You just follow Jesus. Become a disciple. And I'm telling you, people are going to watch you. And just by the power of the gospel coming out in your life, you're going to rebuild trust. Now, it might take some years, but that's all right. You leave that with the Lord. That's the first group of guys. The second group, so guys who have been through a divorce or some massive failure in their marriage, okay, we're glad you're here. Some of those teachable guys I ever teach are guys who have been through divorce because they know the pain. Uh, what's, what's the second group? The second group of men would be men who would, we'd say this, um, Satan would like to derail them. These are the men who haven't left their wives and kids yet. Yet. But if the truth were to be known, this many guys, there's somebody in here, and on the surface, you're married, committed to Christ, all the kids, see, you're a solid family man, but you're thinking about it. You're thinking about leaving. You're thinking about cutting out. Because things have gotten so hard and things have gotten so difficult. And uh, it's something you would never breathe and utter, but you're pondering it. Maybe you've met some gal at work. Maybe you've come across someone in a Bible study. J. Vernon McGee at his church in Los Angeles would not have a choir. He said when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft. In his experience in churches, there'd been so many affairs that had happened out of a choir practice, he wouldn't even have a choir. That, that was his premise. You see, now it can happen in a lot of places besides a choir. But when you're with a woman you normally wouldn't be with, and you have some conversation, and it's all nice and peaceful and innocent, and suddenly there's an emotional, you know what I mean, attachment. Wow. And what you and your wife used to have, you don't have anymore. I've told you about the guy in my early years. We were, uh, he shows up, and he and his wife and three or four kids and came up, introduced himself, and uh, sharp family. We, uh, anyway, hey, I'd like to meet you. I'd like to have lunch with you sometime. I said, sure. And so we wound up having lunch, and uh, we talked on the phone once or twice, and it turned out he had been a CEO of a he had pretty good job. He'd done pretty well. He had, uh, but he, he'd taken a position for a Christian ministry, a nonprofit. Walked away from that and was, just wanted to serve the Lord. And uh, so we decided to have lunch. I went up to this Christian college where he was serving. Walked in and uh, 
receptionist, and she said, yeah, let me get him, and he comes out. So we go to lunch, and we're talking. And uh, on the way back, somehow this, we talked, this book that came up, that was really pretty popular on marriage, Christian book, uh, came up. He said, yeah, I, I've been reading this book. And he said, man, it's just, I said, yeah, I just finished that. He said, man, it's just a great book. In, in fact, he said, it's so good, I've been studying it with a friend. And it's really helped me in my relationship with my wife, and it's helped her with her relationship with her husband. And, uh, wow, you know, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, I wasn't trained in counseling, so I have kind of a different approach. If, uh, if, if I see a scab, I pick it. And I I thought that was really weird. I mean, he just kept going on, man. We, we meet. I said, so you're meeting with this guy? He goes, oh, yeah, we meet once a week. And I, How long have you been meeting? No, six, seven, eight months. It's just been great. I said, you mind if I ask you a personal question? He goes, oh, no, go ahead. I said, have you kissed her yet? He said, what? I said, have you kissed her? He said, who do you think you are? I said, I'm nobody, but you said I could ask you a personal question. And you haven't answered it yet. He said, you're coming on really strong. I said, yeah, I am. But you said I could ask a personal question, and you haven't answered it. Have you kissed her yet? He wouldn't answer me. He just looked straight ahead as we were driving down the road. I said, look, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet, but I'm going to tell you something. It's just a matter of months before you're in the sack with her. I'll never forget it. He was in the driver's, uh, passenger side. We were in this van, and there was room in between. He said, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. Within 90 days, he had left his wife. Oh, it was the receptionist when I walked in. The really nice-looking blonde in a Christian ministry. Walked away from her husband and four kids. Yeah. He wanted to get together, wanted to be a part of the church. Left the corporate for the Christian world. Uh-huh. But you see, everything looked good. Oh, yeah, that guy's... See, he was thinking about it. You can't think about it. You've got to kill that sin. You cannot entertain that. John Owen said either we will be killing sin or sin will be killing us. You have got to put that out. And you run from that relationship. You cut that off. You amputate that. Well, I don't want to hurt her feelings. Hurt her feelings. Well, she won't understand. Probably won't. But that doesn't matter. You do what's right and save your life and her life and your wife and your kids and your grandkids. The problem is with those affairs, we never think about the ending. An affair, it's such a nice word. It's such a light word. It's such an airy word. Affair. When I was a kid, I used to, I used to go to a fair. <laughs> and it was fun, and there were bright lights, and there were Ferris wheels, and there was cotton candy, and there were games. It was, it was we went every year, we looked for, it was, it was a fair. But see, what we're talking about is adultery. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about violating the word of God and your covenant with your wife. 
So if that's you, the Holy Spirit brought you here tonight. And it's real clear what he wants you to do. Now, you've got to decide. As for me, not even you in your house. As for me, am I going to follow the Lord? Well, you've got to figure that out. And I would strongly suggest from the bottom of my heart to you, if you do not want to ruin your life, that you end that immediately. And if you need to get with a Christian friend to help you, you do it. The problem is you've been isolated from Christian friends. Third type of father that the enemy wants to derail uh, is are the guys who are here tonight and they're committed and in your heart of hearts you say I would never leave my wife and kids never let him who stands take heed lest he fall because this can happen to anybody happened to me, it could happen to you. Uh, about seven years after I wrote the book Point Man, about spiritual leadership in the home, I got a call from a pastor, and he said, Steve, I read your book. It, it ministered to me so much. I, uh, well, I just preached it all three services last Sunday, and they were just starting to fall year, the fall. He said, We're, I'm starting a men's study. We're going to take, uh, we, we purchased 500 of your books, Point Man. We're going to take guys through it. And uh, later, I found out they actually had 700 guys go through that book, and he led it. Um, later in the year, got a call from someone on his staff saying, could you ask Steve to call me? Not the senior pastor, someone else, could you ask Steve to call me? We're, we've got a crisis. I called the guy back, and I said, what's going on? He said, you talked to our senior pastor. I said, yeah, he told me all about the study and everything. That's amazing. He said, yeah, he just left his wife and kids this week. The guy who just took 700 through. First Peter 5. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Every day, we've got to watch our hearts. Every day. I'm driving through Highland Village today, and here these girls are out jogging in their little goodies and their little ponytails and just happy and sexy and bouncing. And I'm driving, trying to look straight ahead and say, Jesus, help me. Help me drive straight. And not look to the left nor to the right. Help me not to look. Help me not to look. And I got by that one, and then here comes another one. You ever deal with this? Every day of your life. Let's go to Malachi, second main point. Let's look at uh, three verses in Malachi. Let's look at um, Malachi. Uh, that's the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, if you can find Matthew, just turn left. You're good. So Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and then you probably, like my Bible, there's a blank page between Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. That blank page between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament represents 400 years. 
And for 400 years, God didn't speak. It's fascinating that God wasn't going to speak for 400 years, and it's really fascinating to me the last thing that God said in the Old Testament. But I don't want to begin there. Go to Malachi 2. Let's look at three passages. Malachi 2, verses 13 through 15. Uh, do, do you remember earlier in Deuteronomy 7, God talked about the importance of the covenant and keeping his commandments? In Malachi, here's what's happening. It's written during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther. Uh, he's got basically in this book six indictments on the men of, of Israel Six indictments where they have not kept his commandments. I'm not going to hit all of them. I don't have time. But I'm going to show you a couple of them, okay? And they're kind of religious frauds, like my friend's dad in Georgia. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning. That's a public display, is it not? Oh, Lord, I'm committed. Oh, dear God. The church I was raised in, they used to have an open altar, and people would go out and pray. And some, I mean, you know, it was, sometimes it was genuine, sometimes it wasn't. You don't know people's hearts. I don't. Okay. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning, because God no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. What's the problem? God's not rewarding you for your, you know, for your obedience. Here's the problem. They're not obedient. Verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason is this happening? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God is not in you. This is all fake. This is all outside. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Uh, this goes back to the public Christianity and the private. This goes back, last spring we talked about Ephesians 5. Be careful how you walk, not, not as unwise, but as wise men, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And then it goes on and says... Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And different Christians, you know, have different emphasis on the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit means control. That's what it means. Don't be drunk with wine. Why not? Tell me all the good things that have happened to you in your life whenever you've gotten drunk. <laughs> Let's just list them. Oh, I was thrown in jail. Oh, I told my dad Chevy. Oh, I... Nothing happens that's good when you're drunk. Why? Because you're out of control. Don't be drunk with wine, but be controlled by the Spirit of God. And then he immediately goes into our, our attitudes. He goes into being thankful. And then he goes into the family. See, this, being controlled by the Spirit of God is to affect my inner behavior. He talks to wives. He talks to husbands. He talks to children. He talks to fathers. Because, you see, the control of the Spirit is to make a difference in my behavior, in my relationships, in my sphere of influence. And again, forgive me for repeating this, but take two Bibles. 
open one to Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Take another Bible, open it to Colossians 3.16, put them side by side. That says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then notice the results of letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. They're exactly the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Speaking psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Being thankful in your heart to the Lord Jesus. Wives, husbands, fathers, children. Is it, you know what that tells me? The Word of God and the Spirit of God always work together. The way that Christ controls me is through the Word of God. So Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. That's why we do Bible study. He controls me. He so I was talking to someone recently, and they've got a, a, a little friction in the family about a decision. It's pretty major. And they're trying to resolve it. And there's an opportunity, but this gentleman was telling me he feels checked. Although he really wants it, he feels checked. What's checking him? The Spirit of God with the Word of God. That's very wise. He can't move ahead with the emergency brake on. When God releases it, you can move ahead. See, that's how the Spirit of God controls us. Uh, these, guys are, these guys are all show and no go. He's dealing treacherously with his wife. God does not put up with that. First uh, Peter 3, 7, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Since she is a woman, weaker physically, she's in a weaker position because you're head of the wife. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel and grant her honor as a fellow of the heir of the grace of life. Grant her honor. Watch this. So that your prayers may not be hindered. You don't mess around with this stuff. And we've all treated our wives in wrong ways. You know what? Get it right. Keep short accounts. Confess it. Say, sweetheart, I am sorry. I had no business saying that. Would you forgive me? See, you, this is how you clean stuff up, and you've got to clean it up. You can't leave that stuff laying around. It gets, it festers. It, it, it gets infectious. It's toxic. Screws up. Clean up the relationship. Get it right. Why would you not do that? Well, because you're proud. Don't be proud. Humble yourself. You want God to humble you? You either humble yourself or let him do it. You don't want to do that. And he'll do it because he's a good father. He's the greatest father. He will not put up with that nonsense. I've got the stripes to prove it to you. Look at Malachi 2.16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. What was happening is that these guys, I said no fault divorce started in California. It actually started back here. <laughs> Jesus gave grounds for divorce. There's fornication. But even then, you don't have to do it if you can reconcile. 1 Corinthians 7, if there's abandonment, the goal of the Scripture is to even when there's been a breach, 
is to reconcile if at all possible. But the problem was these guys were divorcing over anything, as we do in our culture, over anything. Just looking for a way out. I grant you that's, that, that, that's kind of the easy way, but it'll be the hard way long term. And then go to Malachi uh, 4.6. Here's how God ends the entire Old Testament. It says this. And by the way, let's do it, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. If in your margin it probably refers to Luke 117, that was fulfilled by John the Baptist. John the Baptist sort of fulfilled in the New Testament the office of Elijah. Okay, that's important. He paved the way for the Lord, but he also did something else, and it's in the next verse. This is wild. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I think it's fair to say Dobson's concern in 1980, he was right on target because we've been hit with a curse. Families are fractured. Fathers have left. Fathers are disconnected. Fathers have abandoned. That's not pleasing to the father. But when a man turns to Christ, you know what God loves to do? God loves to heal a man, and God loves to heal a family. And he loves to heal and reconcile relationships. And he loves to heal those wounds. That's what he loves to do. I'm out of time, but we got to do this third point. Two steps you can do today to anchor your family. Let's go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. I know there are guys in here who are single. You're not married. Uh, We have guys in here who are widowers. You wish your wife was still with you. Yeah, that's that's hard for her to be gone. We have guys in here who are single who have never been married. Uh, It's a wonderful thing to have a godly wife and a godly companion. some of you guys have been through a divorce and, and, and you didn't want the divorce. That's hard. Maybe this has been hard for you to hear, but you don't know what God's going to do in your future. Uh, Ephesians 5, it's talking about marriage. It's like Christ in the church. There's instruction to wives in 22 and then husbands. Let's look at verse 28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. I want to give you two nuggets as men, as husbands and fathers and grandfathers that we can do today to anchor our family down the road today. Uh, The two words are nourish and cherish. I know we're talking about kids, but one of the greatest things you can do for your kids is to nourish and cherish their mother. Did you see that? So husbands ought 
also to love their own wives as their own bodies. I had two doctor appointments yesterday because I'd, Monday I'd screwed up my back at baggage claim in Atlanta and I'd reached and twisted and I had, I had I'd been perfect for six years and I couldn't hardly walk. I couldn't get out of a chair yesterday. So I went to see two doctors because I care about my body. I needed someone to nourish me. I needed someone to cherish me. So this guy took a horse shot needle about nine inches and put it right in there. And, uh, and I've been pain free all day. <laughs> I'm still a little bitter and resentful, but I'm glad I went in. And you know, I don't see what he was doing for me. The, the word nourish is, is real basic. You nourish. It's, it's to provide food. That's what a father does. That's what a husband does. You're, you, why do you go to work? To put food on the table. Guys in the Depression couldn't do that. It's horrible. Okay? People in Houston are having trouble just getting food right now. That's tough when you can't do it. Okay. So to nourish is to feed them. To cherish is to go beyond that and take care of other needs, physical needs, food, clothing, shelter, all those things. But those, those are the basic meanings of the two words, physically. But there's an emotional aspect. There's a spiritual aspect. It's just not the physical, it's the spiritual. Jesus takes care of us. Listen, we're to love our wives as Christ loves the church. How does he love me? How does he love, love me? He has nourished me. He cherishes me. He provides for me on every level of my life. That's my job with my wife. I don't usually read and quote Greek grammars, but I'm going to read something to you where it says in verse 28, so husbands ought also, or some versions say, so husbands should love their own wives. That particular word, let me read this to you, then I'll quit. This is from Cleon Rogers. He says this. The word ought also expresses a moral obligation. And the present tense indicates the continual existence of the obligation. Did you catch that? There is a moral obligation to what? What's the context? To nourish and cherish your wife. And because of the present tense, it's continual. It never ends. You say, yeah, I did that yesterday. Great. So last night, I was tired. I'd been to the doctor. I'd been shot up. I'd had all kinds of stuff. And it's toward bedtime. Mary and I are talking. She mentioned something to me. And I really gave a wrong response. And it was a pretty important situation. I apologized, but I went to bed. And then this morning, the situation was still there. And... And just as I was leaving to do the noon Bible study, she caught me and she said, this has come up and this has come up. And I'm looking at the clock. And I thought, I got to listen to this. Because this is important. And I did. And I listened and I said, you know what, Mary? I'll tell you what, I think we can do this and this, but I got to go. When I come back, we'll figure this out. 
She said, okay. I could tell by her eyes she was okay with that. See, the night before, I hadn't nourished and I hadn't cherished emotionally. But I was getting ready. It's kind of weird. I'm getting ready to leave and go teach this on nourishing and cherishing. <laughs> and it was really a pain in the butt that she brought it up when she did. I almost wanted to say, I've got to go teach the Word of God to these men. <laughs> but what I needed to do was to do it myself. You get it. So, Father, we come to you. We're imperfect men. We're flawed, but you are great. Uh, you're, you're maturing us. You're teaching us. We're just slow learners, but we're getting there. I pray that every man will be encouraged. You never give up on us. What's our bullet point here? Actually, there's two. Let's just nourish and cherish. Could be someone else in our sphere. We may get to work tomorrow, and there's someone who's in need. What do they need? They need some nourishment. They need to be cherished. They need to be cared for. Make us mindful of these things. Protect our homes. You've been so gracious. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.